Welcome everybody to this week's edition of the Art Business Podcast. And my guest today, as last time, is uh, an MA Art Business alumna, uh, Alexandra Bass. I think she prefers to be called at Alex. <laughs> it's the shortened version. Um, Alexandra Bass, Alex. Uh, and uh, she studied in London at Southern Institute of Art, the MA Art Business in 2021. Uh, we might come back to that later in the podcast because that was obviously a very interesting time in terms of what was happening with our with the pandemic and lockdowns and uh, we might speak later Alex about the kind of challenges of uh, of you being in that class of 2021 uh, and the, and um, you your dissertation subject matter will interest the listeners uh, it was indeed on the effects of the lockdown and COVID-19 on creating art businesses how we how can we create or continue with maybe emerging art businesses uh, during during the COVID-19 era? So we might talk about that later as well. Prior to that, Alex had studied at uh, Columbia University in New York in their class of 2018, uh, art history, and significantly with business management, uh, which is quite unusual, I think, as a combination. And maybe, Alex, that's what led you to come to London and study the MA art business. And you, as I understand it, you graduated magna cum laude, that wonderful Latin phrase that we don't tend to use in the UK, strangely. Um, but what, do, what does it mean? To me, it means with great, in Latin, it's with great praise. I have to admit, I don't know exactly what it means, but... Um... <laughs> Just, you know, it means, looks good on a resume. <laughs> yeah, it kind of means that um, I guess it's them that are praising you. Well, <laughs> anyway. that's right. <laughs> uh, so as usual, I'm going to start just by asking you, you know, what's your favourite city and what what are your reasons for that? These are tough questions, even though they're just directory questions. Um, well, I'm currently based in New York. I've, I've always pretty much lived in New York City. And... Well, I was born here. I grew up in New Jersey outside of the city. And then I came back here for undergrad. And my first job out of undergrad was also in New York. So I have quite a lot of experience with, um, you know, the social scene and the art world in New York. And that led me to want to do the Sotheby's program in London. And London, London quickly became my, I would say London is my favorite city as a place I don't live full time. And I think the reason why is that it combined both what I am familiar with and love about New York in a sense that it's fast paced. Everyone is, um, I feel like highly motivated, like hardworking, you know, rushing around all the time, but then it has those little green pockets to it um, that kind of take you away from that fast paced lifestyle. And obviously the beautiful European architecture and that his history that, you don't see every day when you're walking around a city like New York, it's obviously much newer. Um, and I love Paris as well. So I guess London is sort of a synthesis of what I love about New York and, you know, a European city like Paris. Um, and yeah, I just can't wait to go back. And it was just so, it was so nice getting to experience what the art world is really like in in a different city because I'd really only experienced that in the States. Um, so for many reasons, I think London is, um, has quickly become my new favorite city. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I think that's that. I, I, I mean, I travel to New York occasionally. Um, we, we met there on the <clears throat> Sotheby's Global Open Day a few weeks back where you came and uh, were on an alumna, alumni panel. 
so for the cool. for the prospects. It was brilliant. Um, and and what I mean, maybe you could say something to the listeners about the building in New York compared to the building in London. The very different. I mean, it's in <laughs> Midtown Manhattan, so it's like you're. It, I wouldn't say it's a typical office building. Actually, the, I I loved the lobby there. It had a lot of Art Deco charm, and but I think it's a totally different experience. I think at Bedford Square, you're in a cute, tiny little building and feels more like a schoolhouse and you have the little greenery outside. And I don't know, I think I was just missing that after having studied in the city. Um, and Columbia, what was so nice about going to Columbia is they have their own campus versus a school like NYU where it's really like in the heart of downtown Manhattan. So I think for different reasons, the New York program would be really exciting to other students. And I think for me, I was really seeking a different experience. Um, and I loved the campus there as well. And it was so nice going back for our delayed graduation and getting to go back into the building and um, experience Bedford Square again. But yeah, it, it was really charming. I loved it. Yeah. And um, moving from there out to the countryside as we call it I guess in the UK I think I think in the in the in North America you tend to refer to wilderness locations we would probably you know that I think that term is beginning to come into the the, the English language now but um uh, I quite like wilderness I think it uh, but are there any kind of places that you like to get out to away from the city sometimes yeah so I actually grew up going out to Long Island to the beach um and it's nice because it's only like a two hour drive from Manhattan. And so that is where my parents actually live full time. So I will drive out there most weekends and we spend most of the summer there as well. Um, my boyfriend was actually from California and I don't think that this is necessarily rural or wilderness, but um, the town he's from in Southern California, I also love visiting. It's very relaxed. It's not a city. Um, and so I do love the chances I get to not be in the city. And I think once you're out of the city, even if it's just for a long weekend and you come back, you appreciate it a lot more and you realize how much calmer you are. You're not yelling at people when you're crossing the street. Um, and then when I was in London, I mean, I loved getting to see um, all of the towns outside of London, like the trip we took to Cornwall. And then I also spent my Thanksgiving there in the um, Cotswolds, which was beautiful. So if I had more time, I would have loved to have explored more of all of the rural locations outside of London. Um, they all have so much to offer and they also all have their own little art scene. And something that's cool about where we go in Long Island is it's very, uh, it has a very um, art centric history. Um, artists like Jackson Pollock and de Kooning painted out there. And so there is this rich arts culture and they have um, the, the Jackson Pollock house, they have a lot of like outdoor sculpture gardens and some smaller museums. So I like the uh, energy out there. And I don't know if there's still contemporary, like working living artists that actually are out there, but um, it's nice to like think about the history of the location that you're in. Yeah, and you're touching on um, very well-known artists that that often have not worked in this, preferred to work in, in, a, in a more non-urban location uh, you know our, our, the trip you referred to to Cornwall to St Ives the art colony in the, the southwest of England on 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 the coast beautiful landscapes seascapes and 
Um, yeah, I, I always find that very interesting to work out whether or not where an artist likes to work, because I think it helps me to understand, you know, their work. It's quite interesting thinking of Jackson Pollock. <laughs> you think of him as such an urban artist in some ways, uh, but there, there he is actually enjoying views of the ocean and as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so what about buildings? Are there any build? Are there any particular buildings uh, that you you, you love? Uh, because I'm thinking we often we often divorce wrongly, I think, divorce architecture from our study of visual culture. And I think it's such an important part of of art and visual culture. But any anything springs to mind that you particularly like? Um, about New York, I think mm. some examples. I mean, it's hard because you really need to. I think, know the city well and walk around and have that thinking cap on where you're actually looking and you're not just getting to your next de destination and doing because mm -hmm. there are a lot of little historical facets that haven't been um, modernized and so I live in the West Village and if you walk around that area you see a lot of older carriage houses that might be renovated inside but mm -hmm. somewhat ha have somewhat um, preserved the exteriors and then um, I love the big arch in Washington Square Park. That reminds me of the Arc de Triomphe, but a very uh, uh, minute version of that. Um, and then, I mean, I think everywhere in London, I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard to divorce your experience in London from the architecture. And I really just loved, um, when I was in London, I lived in Notting Hill and I loved all of just the houses sort of lined up. And that's something you don't experience in New York. Obviously you have high rises everywhere. Um, and I think what's interesting about European cities is I feel like the high rises in the city center are somewhat like removed from where a lot of people live. Um, and in New York, you're really just constantly inter intersecting like both and all, all different architecture all the time. Um, but I also really enjoy that. I think New York has these interesting different pockets. So if you go to the Upper East Side, for example, where um, you have Fifth Avenue with all the beautiful museums and the Met and everything like that. You get to see remnants of architecture, neoclassical architecture from 1800s and how that mixes in with um, current. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised when I first went to New York because most people who don't, who've never been to the, the States, uh, that we, we get this image of New York in particular uh, on, on from movies and film series and so on. Uh, and so you just think it's all sky, it's all Manhattan skyscrapers and a bit of, and then Central Park and there's nothing in between. And I, I was pleasantly surprised by the area you just mentioned, the Upper East Side, the some beautiful houses around there. Oh I mean, my the God. architecture is lovely. So it's it's kind of more of a mixture, I think, um, and has more of a sense of of, of history uh, than, than you might think. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's almost fun to research that history when you're walking around and, you know, this building looks interesting. What did it used to be? Yeah. And um, actually, I would say also the architecture up at Columbia, which is kind of out of the way if you're just a tourist in the, the, in the city, but anyone can go up and walk around that campus is, um, is really magnificent and has an interesting history. And they have um, some contemporary architects like Lorenzo Piano, I think. Not may not be saying the name right, and then um, yeah. obviously more historical architects who did the library buildings. Um, so that's a beautiful place to walk around. And yeah, and last time I was in New York, I I, well, I went back, returned to the High Line. It was a lovely morning, and um, the uh, the High Line walkway for for listeners who who 
who don't know that in New York, um, it's somewhere that you're bound to go if you go for a, as a tourist to New York. Um, you know, it's one of the new kids on the block, I guess, in terms of New York tourism. It's relatively recently kind of opened up, but that that was interesting because it, it's partly um, what I would call industrial archaeology. Uh, it used to be the old railway, and then Utfeld, who I, I don't know whether we visited um, Hauser and Worth in Somerset on the way down to Cornwall. Did, did, did you do that? I think that we weren't. I think we did that the year after you, perhaps. But Hauser and Worth um, famously have a have a, a gallery out in the countryside connected to what we were talking about earlier. And um, Piet Ulfeld, uh, the, the Dutch uh, landscape designer, he did their garden. He, he did the High Line as well. Oh, um, wow. So, and, 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 and he's, yeah. it's quite, he's an interesting artist because he, he really sees his gardens as works of art. So at Hauser and Worth, they're, they're not allowed to put any other works of art on his garden. <laughs> like sculptures because it is the work of art they have to be very very careful um so um but that that is that i think that will anyone who hasn't been to new york yet who's listening do go to the high line and walk along that not only does it take you across some um, one of the great uh commercial you know art centers at chelsea chelsea's below your feet and so on you, um but there, there's the whitney gallery is on that it's a great a great walk for people who like art but it's also very beautiful in itself and has these these garden or this, I don't know whether you call it garden, this natural element that is created by Utfeld. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. I think as someone that lives here, you have to remind yourself to sort of go to certain places that yeah. you wouldn't otherwise go to on your daily. That's walk. the same. It's the same in London. I, I, I sometimes I, I think I'm going to be a tourist today. I'm going to pretend I'm a tourist. I'm going to get a guidebook to London That's now. Very nice. And, and it's when amazing. my friends come visit, I like to show them around. And then I'm like, why don't I do this more often? But yeah. One's too busy, <laughs> and, um, and and music, Alex. Do you do you, do you like? Are you quite quite eclectic taste in music or anything you? Yeah, de definitely eclectic. I really like a wide range of music um, in terms of time periods. Um, I grew up. Well, my mom was born in the sixties, so the Beatles were a huge <sighs> influence on her. I think she had her first Beatles record when she was five years old and played it nonstop. And wow. so, can, she, can you remember what that was? <laughs> um, I feel like I'm. Is it she it loves? Wrong. Is it she loves you? Yes, and and yeah. I think drive my car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember my sisters getting bringing that in on a little forty-five and putting it on the stereogram and dance. Yeah, and so yeah. she was so into music, and I love that image of her as like a five-year-old, and and I'm trying to think of music I listened to when I was five years old, and it was not that sophisticated <laughs> at all but um dancing around in her living room to the Beatles and I just think that that's so cute so actually um this year I moved into an apartment with my boyfriend now we have a record player and so an activity <laughs> we do every Sunday we try to uh stick to it as we walk around the village and we buy a new record and so we're sort of combining our music taste but it's a lot of classic rock um some contemporary bands as well Mm -hmm. He likes some jazz, which I've grown to like a little bit. <laughs> but there's, then, some, <clears throat> there's some amazing jazz clubs in New York. I've, I've been to a lot of them when I've been out. Yeah, there. and they're, they're starting really to become lovely. popular again, too, sort of these yeah. cocktail lounges. Yeah, no, it's, um, it makes a good good, good evening out, actually, the jazz. And when, when you're talking about going around buying, are you buying vinyl? Yeah. Great, fantastic. Which is yeah. what you meant by a record player, yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. I know there's different types of records. I'm yeah. like, I'm still getting used to all of the jargon because it's obviously not something I grew up with. Yeah, um, 
uh, um, earlier podcast I did with Top Taylor. I can't remember if he lectured if Top lectured to your he, he often yeah. So he we used to bring him in more than we do now really because he um, he was curator of Rifle Maker, which was this amazing gallery in Soho, which eventually closed in 2013. But he's also a musician, and during COVID, he he created his first long playing vinyl records, which which I use for the intro and outro music for this podcast. <laughs> Oh, very so, cool. And it's kind of, you might quite, your mum would probably really like it because it's deliberately retro. I'm sure Top, Top will probably be listening to this. I'm sure you won't mind me saying that. Um, so, so, so he's really into the kind of whole vinyl scene. Um, yeah. And then, and then Alex, Alex, well, we're talking about music and you were talking about your mum in the 1960s, obviously long before you, you were born. Um, can you, um, can you remember um as, as as a child can you remember any early memories of visual culture art suddenly understanding oh this is art this isn't reality <laughs> yeah um I mean and going back to my mom that's a great segue she she studied um fine arts in college and she never did anything professionally with it but she's always and she still is very creative and artistic and so growing up in and near the city she would take me to museums from like infancy um I think one of my favorite museums was the Museum of Natural History obviously as a kid going and seeing mm. these dinosaurs is like so out of this world and she would take me to the Met um and really all of the amazing museums that New York has uptown so I think going on those excursions gave me I, I don't know if you could say a child has an appreciation for it, but at least an understanding that it exists and it's something to look at and somewhat appreciate and that it has this aesthetic value that's different from other things. And so I think being introduced to art from a young age is great. And um, when I see kids now doing tours of the Met and stuff, I always like to sort of have my ear to their tour and like listen in on what their commentary is because they think it's so fascinating to hear what a child is thinking when they're looking at a painting or a sculpture. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm very privileged to have grown up in a city that has so much art um, and being able to experience those museums from a young age, they almost feel like home to me. Like when I go to the Met, I know their floor plan, like the back of my hand and all of the galleries there. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. And I can see some. I can see some um, art hanging on. I think one one's a mirror, possibly a circular mirror. Yeah. And is that a Richard Prince in the middle? It does kind of look like Richard Prince, like the yeah. Marlboro Cowboy. Yeah, but exactly. it's this artist that my boyfriend found named Mark Maggiore, and it's a print of one of his paintings. And Fantastic. I sort of, the whole apartment has this um, kind of late 60s, 70s feel, and so the painting has these like warm cream colors to it. Um, and then I mixed it with some contemporary prints that I have by um, Yoshimoto Nara. And then above that is actually an artist who I met at Goldsmiths when I was in London. Her name's Sarah Rinaldi. Um, and the rest of my apartment is also very maximalist. Every wall has like, its own <laughs> gallery wall to it, which you can kind of see in my convex yeah. mirror here, how above my couch I have a bunch of- I think it's great. I, I've got really fed up with the, with the sort of minimalist aesthetic. I think I think it, oh it actually totally. the, the pictures on the wall they they almost look like nineteenth century uh, display where you have this sort of mosaic where you have paintings right up the wall that you can't even see the old masters the National Gallery I, look like that. I personally love that aesthetic. I think it's a balance, but I would much rather go into someone's home and 
get a sense of who they are and what they like than someone just subscribing to what they think is in fashion with minimalism. So, um, and something that we might touch on later and what I've been doing more of now is interior design. So oh, right. I'll probably start sharing images of, of my apartment and um, all the vintage pieces that I purchased and also the artwork. So it's something that I really um, take an interest in. And um, yeah, because I think right. living with art is um, so personal, but it's hard, it's hard for me to understand how people like don't live with art, you know, because I just <laughs> think it just changes your, your experience so much. Yeah, I've been um, I've been doing some introductions for some contemporary artists in London recently, you know, for their catalogues of exhibitions, and um, a couple of them have kindly given me like a print, <laughs> which is wonderful, you know, <laughs> a kind of a remuneration for the for, for for working with them on their shows, and um, it's really really different having worked by an artist that you've actually worked with, uh, you know, on your wall. I think the relationship, you know, you keep you look at it and it just grows and grows and grows within you. Yeah. It's it's really it's quite different from the other stuff that I've got on my walls, but um, there you go. Um, and and did you ever make art, Alex? I can't remember whether you ever created stuff. Yeah, um, in high school, I was in um, the AP Studio Art program that my school had, and I would say I definitely am like technically good at drawing. I never like loved painting. I really enjoyed sketching, and I think the class just got to a point where, you know, you started building a portfolio and I didn't really like having my art critiqued. And I realized that I preferred looking and critiquing <laughs> other people's artwork instead. And so for me, that creativity has manifested in other ways like design. And um, I haven't really gotten back to actual fine arts, but when I do have the, um, the time to, take like a pottery class or do some sort of painting I really enjoy it but for me it's more of a hobby and I I like to keep it that way um and I like to work with artists and see what they're doing and um provide commentary on on their work and their trajectory so I've realized that I think that's where um my artistic sensibilities lie more so maybe now we could talk about um, I remember. I remember when you came to the institute as a student. Um, you were, you, uh, um, you know, we all use social media. People are following you, and you're following them. So and I, I immediately saw that you were linked to this, um, this, uh, this art institution called um, Salon Twenty One. And now you're the, uh, you, you actually you were the founder of it, and now and you're the CEO. So could you tell us about? It's a great name, Salon 21, but I think the listeners would like to know why you called it Salon. Thank you. And a lot of people don't know what it is, obviously, just looking at it on Instagram, what that name really means. So um, I'll sort of give you the backstory. I started it in my senior year at Columbia University. I loved um, getting to meet artists working in um, studying in the city at various art schools like Parsons and SBA and NYU. And I really loved what they were creating. And for me, I always had a harder entry point to contemporary art. I think like having studied art history, I only took like one or two contem contemporary art classes and I'm doing quotation marks for listeners because that obviously encompasses so much, but my background is more in antiquities and that's why you know I took the old and old masters and that's why I took those courses with you at um, the Sotheby's Institute and so the contemporary art that I'm really 
or that I gravitate towards has some relationship or inspiration from old masters or antiquities to some extent or, or older techniques being explored in a new way. Um, and I just realized, you know, if you don't have the ability to take a class at Columbia, for example, where you're learning about Neo Dada and Jackson Pollock and, you know, I could go on and on about na with names, but um, then it's really hard and can be really inaccessible. So I wanted to create um, eventually a members club where people who are in the art world, who just, you know, are interested in it, totally not in the art world at all, but want to learn more, can come together with less of a barrier to entry to talk about art, meet emerging artists, and network as well. So I didn't really feel like there was any sort of space on campus or really in the city, you know, that wasn't just a bar or a nightclub or something like that, where you could come together with this, with the focus of artwork. And then that obviously can lead into so many different conversations. And so that's obviously inspired by the um, history of art salons dating back to, I think the 16th century in Italy, where obviously an elite class of people who had leisure time would come together and discuss politics and um, you know the, the contemporary art of their time and a bunch of other topics and um, socialize as well. So trying to recreate that experience with um, my demographic in New York and hopefully in London and maybe other cities. But yeah, the name I think confuses a lot of people. I actually right out of Columbia, tried to do a little pop-up shop and I called it Salon 21. And I got phone calls asking if we did hair and makeup and people <laughs> didn't understand, you know, what the connotation was. And then the 21 is supposed to be indicative of the 21st century. So it's a salon of the 21st century. As um, opposed to the I think more, more and more people sort of get, get where I'm going with that now. But how it's really it, been a process, yeah. How how so so the idea you had when you were at Columbia of 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 create I mean presumably is the driving thing that you you're you're a sociable person and and you 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 like talking about art with other like-minded people and the idea was to create a, a an actual physical event where you you what, what would you do? Would you would you hire space or use one of the members' spaces that were work that you know, how, how did you used to meet and where did you used to meet and where do you meet now, you know? So now, well, okay. So basically when I first did it out of Columbia, we had this pop-up space and I don't think that really captured what I was trying to do. It looked mm -hmm. more like a retail concept or a gallery space. And I was really sort of anti that like white cube gallery aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um, and I really wanted to show people what it would look like to, you know, walk into like Gertrude Stein's apartment and see artwork mixed in with, you know, her, her decor and, and how people live with art and interact with art. So I don't feel like you get that same experience by walking into a gallery per se. Um, and after that first iteration, I decided to go back to school to get more, you know, business knowledge and sort of flesh out that business plan a bit more at Sotheby's COVID then happened and so what we did was through the business salon 21 I did a lot of these um, zoom conversations with professors with curators um, former uh, students of, that I was at the Sotheby's program with and um, just general people like interested in art and we would talk about various topics um, 
also interviewed a bunch of artists on their current practice. And so it became more of a digital format just by yeah. the nature of what was happening. And now thinking about the future and this ties into what I wrote my dissertation about is this sort of desire now to connect in person after two plus years of having to do so virtually, um, really wanting to create these spaces that are you know, safe, COVID-friendly for people to come together in person, really disconnect from their phones, the internet, be present in that space and just devote that hour, two hours to listening to an artist speak about their practice and, you know, talking to the people who also attended versus um, having that experience mediated in another way. So I think I was also just really sick of, and I do use Instagram a lot to promote my business, but I was sort of sick of experiencing and only interacting with art in that digital sense. And so I think Salon 21 came out of the desire to do so physically with people and actually have real conversations that go beyond a Zoom um, or a DM conversation. Yeah. Sure. I, th I think we're getting a little bit of tapping noise. Maybe you're tapping on the table as you're talking. I don't oh, know. Oh, maybe. I'll keep no, no, just, it doesn't matter. It's just I couldn't work, quite work out what it was. And the, 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 the listeners will know that when you're listening to podcasts, you sometimes hear these really interesting noises. But uh, and, and, and often it's because we're kind of like tapping away. And it, the microphones pick them up really, really, yeah. really well, easy. It's like you're thinking through something, right? And you're fidgeting and you're trying to get the words out concisely. And I don't have too many podcast experiences. So I couldn't work out was some, <laughs> someone else in your in your apartment was like drumming or something <laughs> oh no oh my god okay no anyway so 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 basically in, in terms of the kind of covid you know you wrote your dissertation on uh, I, I think you wrote your dissertation because I, I didn't supervise you but i think it was a was it a, a practice-based dissertation with a business yeah. plan and that was on about salon 21 and it was about how you were going to face the challenges of covid so presumably a lot of that was about the um the hybrid forms that we're all very aware of now in the whole world not just the art world you know some is digital some is in physical spaces but so now you're you're wanting to go back into that physical space idea yeah and I think you know COVID obviously illuminated that people still want to work, work remotely we're still going to have these virtual conversations especially if we don't live in the same city and this is one example of that having this podcast with you not being able to do it in person yeah um so so the dissertation was really about what world we're going to enter into where we're going to have these hybrid forms of socialization um, specifically related to the art world but also how this is going to really ignite a fire in people to want to like reconnect in person again um, yeah. and so sort of using my um, business salon 21 as the test case for um, a and I don't want to say post-COVID because I don't think we're out there yet and I don't know if we ever will be, but um, I guess post the height of COVID, what that world will look like when we start coming back together in person to experience art together and sort of proving that there will be a desire to do that and need to do that. And I don't think COVID made our society shift just, you know, just firmly into a digital realm. Um, obviously, it's always going to exist. And I think we have to get used to, like I said, this hybrid um, experience of doing things, which for better or for worse, I think there, there are ups and downs to it. But um, 
yeah, I think I was just sort of trying to prove that we as humans want to find community and the focus of that type of community was an arts community and whether we do that online during COVID or in person before COVID and after, that'll always exist. And so um, that was sort of the um, solution and, and theory to why I think a business like Salon 21 could be viable. Yeah, and I mean, that the, I'm always a glass half full person with these things. And I, I think it's been amazing. A bit, you know, we probably wouldn't be Although this is like a digital podcast, we probably I probably wouldn't be talking to you, um, you know, on this podcast uh, if it hadn't been for an understanding right. of, uh, of technology and and you know, uh, we used to in the institute very occasionally we experimented with a live feed from a colleague in New York who would then ask our students could ask, in London could ask some questions about the recent New York auction rounds and so on but it, it the, the technology was bad it, it, it always it often broke down you couldn't hear you know whereas now actually that that because of Covid we've perfected that kind of communication so I'm hoping that that will mean we might move back into globalization again you know I'm, I'm going to be using a lot more lectures from all over the world from now on and already am because of because they can appear on zoom and the students love that and I think we all love that but obviously we want that in a physical setting and with most of our lecturers and seminars being being in a in a physical setting so I think there's a lot of a lot of good come out of it and um you know after the recent uh well COVID of the lockdown obviously stopped us was a break on globalization to a certain extent because it stopped us traveling but you can see what's happened everybody wants to travel again now and um, we've got problems in London this weekend it's a bank holiday because it's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee this weekend so it's actually a bank holiday today and yesterday it was over the weekend and everybody's trying to fly out of London I don't think because they don't want to be here for the Jubilee celebrations but they just want to travel again and um you know, I, I think that that I, I honestly don't think that a lot of people were worried that the digital world would totally take over. But human nature is it's so built into us, as you say, Alex, to to want to be with people in space, in, in actual physical spaces. And coming on, leading on from that, I was going to ask you about you, you've been quite a lot. You see, you always seem to be quite involved with not political movements, but like social movements, social justice movements. Um, I, I, I and what is the Bass Foundation? Presumably this is something to do with your family. Yes. So I've really always been involved in community service. Um, before I was born, my dad started a foundation in honor of his parents called the Bass Foundation, their last name. Um, he grew up in the town over from where I grew up in Jersey. And it was really about giving back to underprivileged communities there and helping mentor tutor students as well as doing food drives, toy drives during Christmas and the holiday season, and really just trying to support communities so close and adjacent to us in proximity in, in so many different ways. And I think now the crux of that foundation is really about um, doing these after school tutoring and mentoring programs. And so when I was in high school, I sort of took an interest in some of the students who gravitated more towards the arts and a big problem in the States. And this was something that was interesting in one of the um, electives I took, I think with Melanie, where um, we talked about 
how the government in in London and in other European countries allocates funds to arts institutions where here it's um it, it's really hard for institutions and and for for schools to um to get that type of funding so there are a lot of colleges and high schools and I was very fortunate to go to a high school that did have an arts program but there are a lot of high schools who uh, that don't get that funding if they don't reach certain test scores and I just the system is very broken um, and so I can't imagine having gone through school without having an artistic outlet um, and I really wanted to give back the in terms of both the art historical knowledge I had acquired and also just the actual you know studio art knowledge that I had so I worked with a lot of students to um, help develop some lesson plans with them and do some some of these after school arts programs. Um, and I actually just found out about a uh, nonprofit in the city called Free Arts that is also committed to those same things. And hopefully this fall I'll join them as a mentor um, and not just in a studio art capacity, but helping um, high school students develop their resume and enter to hopefully enter into the art world professionally. And um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to have that proximity to museums and galleries, but for um, young kids who don't have that and they are interested in it, you know, what's the starting point for them there? So I just think that when you, when you look at the art world, there's all these, you know, connotations, rightfully so, that it's exclusive and inaccessible. And um, part of what I'm trying to do with Salon 21 as well is sort of break down those barriers to entry, um, because I think art's something that should be appreciated by everyone um, and has has value in that respect that we can learn from it um, and and it can really like change our world view in that way and so it's very um, you know it's sad when I when that's not everyone else's experience because it is a very niche and privileged one so that's where a lot of my um, community activity is focused now and do you um Sometimes I know because um, some uh, I know other people who've created like art foundations in like underprivileged areas of cities. I'm thinking of people like Patricia Sandretto, the Italian art collector, who mm. very wealthy family, and she put the foundation in Torino. I don't think your year did we go to Torino? We with, did, yeah. That was yeah, really we went really to her foundation, and you might remember that she spoke to us, and she's another person that that foundation was to reach out to the the poor Italian families in that area. And she brings them in regularly, like at least once a week uh, to, uh, to, to, to and, and the artists that she shows there are very often, she will actually go out to places like India and she'll find equivalent artists, i.e. artists who would otherwise not get picked up on the scene, right. you know, often in, in villages, relatively poor. And she, she actually brings them and promotes their work to, you know, and it's selling that to people who have money to buy, but also uh, uh, is creating an understanding with those local people. So, so, um, but I, I know one of the problems people often have is particularly with contemporary art, which can be quite difficult, intellectually difficult to understand. Um, do you ever, do you ever get any kickback when you were doing that work with underprivileged people, um, if we can call them that, who, who just didn't see the point of art? And, and how do you overcome that when someone says, what, you know, how, how is this gonna earn me a crust? <laughs> of course, and I think, um, you know, as I was saying before, I personally felt that contemporary art was inaccessible to me and like someone with a degree in art history. Um, and so having the knowledge to understand a site is not 
something that everybody has or is exposed to. And so, yes, there are people that if you don't grow up experiencing art, you don't necessarily understand the value in it. And so I was working with kids who were interested in painting and drawing and through those lessons with them, I would try to always infuse an art historical element into it. And so I'd really talk about artists like Picasso and how they broke out of their mold and did different things. And I think a lot of these kids were really nervous about sticking to certain conventions. And I really wanted to tap into that like childhood energy to just sort of do whatever you think, you know, whatever you like and, and how beautiful that can be. So I think if you, it's a different level when you're like talking about and experiencing contemporary art, but I always think the best way um, to approach it is to go back to the history and try to explain these are the movements it came out came from and um, for me I mean history was always a way to understand things so talking about how trying to think of a, a good example but maybe how the neo-dada movement came out of what was happening in Europe and the discontent there so understanding how a lot of social movements then spurred these artistic movements, I think is a way for people to understand it better, that it's not just mm -hmm. something that's just up on the wall without any context. So I think always just providing the most context you can. And then the flip side to that is sometimes it's obviously really nice to look at art without any context and just see what your initial impressions are of it. Um, yeah. But I think that's a great way to break down that barrier to entry is talking about the history. And of course, art um, is is always explored as uh, in mental health. Um, it's it's meant to, it's many people believe it, it has a healing aspect yeah. to it, particularly if you're encouraging people to do art uh, as well as kind of look at it as well. Um, I I was just just coming back out of that kind of social world, as it were, uh, back to the the business aspects. <clears throat> I think how. The, the Salon 21 project, for example, and uh, I haven't read, I still haven't read your dissertation. It's just been so busy. As you know, we've had two cohorts in the last two years. I I will get round to reading it. Uh, no but, problem. Um, but, but, <laughs> I don't but, think but, my family's read it either. <laughs> but lis I, listeners, I think, to this podcast are going to be, they're going to be particularly interested in like the, the, the business aspects of Salon 21. Are there any? I mean, presume, do you take subscriptions from people? Is it a not-for-profit organization? Maybe you could explain a little bit about the business yeah. structure and how you manage it, how you market it. Totally. So it's it's still in flux because I'm trying to figure out coming out of COVID, how to turn it back again to sure. a physical experience. And I think the challenge with doing that in a city like New York is the physical overhead and the rents here are crazy and having to find a physical space. But my plan right now that I'll tell you is for the fall, I really want to open a physical space that operates as um, artist studios and an event space where I can bring people in and host these events. They can see some of the artists that I work with actually practice and and work on their pieces and then whether it's one of them speaking about their practice or the event has to do with something else really just create this collective space that has this really great artistic energy and um so that's something i'm working on because i think that the business plan and, and really the vision and the motivation behind starting this like needs to be realized in a physical capacity and so because of covid because of financial restrictions that hasn't been able to happen yet. And I think now I'm in a position where I'm able to do that. And tied into that is my love of design and interiors. And part of what I've been putting out there on Instagram and other social media platforms um, 
are spaces I've designed, whether it's my apartment or I was commissioned to do a showroom for um, this vintage uh, designer re retail company in Soho. And I did their 2000 square foot loft space, incorporated some art from Salon 21 artists into it as well. Um, my knowledge of like vintage furniture as well and all the websites I like to shop on. And really we just made the space this like amazing experience rather than like your traditional retail store or showroom. Um, and so that sort of just happened organically. I think people would come over to my apartment to see how I displayed art, um, incorporated that with my furniture and my personal objects and whatnot, and thought that that was like a good direction for me to head in and is something I love to do. And I think it obviously is tied to fine art. So I think the direction for Salon 21 is a bit twofold where I operate as an art advisor and design consultant, as well as putting on these in-person events. And I would love for the community to grow where I could implement a membership program where maybe you get invited to two events a month and those can range from an intimate dinner party where um, the artist is hosting it and he or she is talking about their practice or maybe it's a trip to a museum where I take you through it and explain a new exhibition. So really, I think there's so many different um, activations um, that we could do with it. But I think the key is really just, and I think that we're in a good place with it now is building that community to be able to launch something like this and for it to have legs and meaning. So members of Salon 21 in your business model, they would pay an annual subscription? Yes, and yeah. so I'm still working that out, I think, sure. um, appealing to my demographic. Obviously we're starting out in the job market and don't have a ton of disposable income, but I'm appealing to people who do want to spend that disposable income on arts and also networking and meeting people. So, you know, maybe instead of going to an expensive restaurant or bar one night, you'll come to Salon 21 instead and put those resources to supporting our program of emerging artists and, you know, getting um, a really great dinner out of it as well. One of the events that we had back in March, actually at my old apartment before I moved, when it was vacant, I set up a big long table I had a friend of mine use the kitchen to create this beautiful meal and I sold tickets to it to friends and on 21 followers and put up the artwork of an artist named Alex Leave, who was studying at the School of Visual Arts in the city. And it was an artist talk style dinner and people just loved it. They were like, you know, dinner and a show type of experience and they loved meeting each other too. And there's an art that goes into entertaining, obviously, figuring out who should sit next to who. <laughs> um, and so I really enjoy all of that. I really like connecting people. It's such a good feeling when your friends become friends with each other. And so sort of being me as that nexus point between the artists and potential collectors and also within that collector group, just getting people to, to um, network with each other and, and build those relationships. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I think that, that it's not you know when we're at school and high school and at university it's not anything it's not something that's ever listed on a potential careers it's but a, a lot of people do this is going a lot of this goes on a lot but I think it's quite hidden I, I certainly know people through my contacts in London who do similar things to you they're they're often they're often kind of almost have a patron who is like minor aristocracy or minor royalty I know a couple of people like that they, <laughs> I they love one. <laughs> yeah, they, they use their links to like royalty to host 
these events where they invite artists and potential collectors, dealers, and people who just like art. Uh, it's quite, I think there's more of that going on than people might realise. So anyone listening to this who, who lives in that sort of world and likes the idea of, of that, it, it potentially is a, a really interesting thing, and thing to do. And, um, uh, you know, you just have to get on with it, really, don't you, and sort of start creating events that are exciting. But I think, yeah. I think the, the model is different from the normal one. And the reason we don't know so much about it is because it's relatively private, because it the whole point, aesthetically, if you like, is it takes place in a private salon, right. as it were, in, in that so kind of It has of that exclusivity, but I also don't like using that word because it's really open to anyone who wants to come and learn and, sure. and meet new people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having it not be, for example, on the street level, having it be on the eighth floor of a building adds that excitement that you're entering into an experience that most people just wouldn't know about. And so keeping that like word of mouth alive too, um, not just learning about things on social media, but having a friend tell you, wow, I went to this amazing event hosted on the eighth floor of this random office building. And I got to meet three artists and I met someone who works at this gallery and so on and so forth. Um, and just, I don't know, tapping into something that obviously people do all the time, but I think is not necessarily our social sort of like mindset on a daily basis to meet new people. So, um, and I have a lot of friends who moving to the city have moved from the city and always just want to meet new people. So yeah, I'd love to act as that intermediary. That's brilliant. And uh, I think you're, you're, you're currently also working as a communications coordinator for Gagosi in New York. Gagosi in New York. <laughs> so my full-time job. That's your full-time job. Yeah. Yes. Is um, media and um public relations at Gagosian Gallery in right. New York and um I work with a really great group of um colleagues who I actually knew from my time working at Sotheby's Auction House so yep. our world's always related and any tips I would give to and what I kind of said on the panel as well is never burn bridges always keep those connections alive because the art world even though it seems big is so small and people you've worked with at one place you know might end up being your boss at another so yeah um, and as you know our students um including yourself they 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 have no problem um going straight from Sotheby's Institute of Art uh to into Christie's Bonhams Phillips you know which is good obviously it does it does suggest that um uh people that have rival brand names as it were still very much respect our our students and the the, the learning processes that they've gone through so it's, it's really good but as you say it's a right. very small world and the Sotheby's um alumni network is amazing too and there are a lot of people who I work with at the gallery who will then be like oh you also did the Sotheby's program whether yeah. they did it 10 years ago or a year ago and yeah. so there's that connection there which is always nice to talk about I um, guess I guess you could use the 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 the, uh, the Sotheby's alumni um, thing in New York maybe yeah. as a theme as a, as a as an evening that you invite you you do one of your salon twenty one events but for them perfect <laughs> and their friends it and yeah exactly well Alex but, um, um, <laughs> um I was just going to say um so so I was going to ask you about future plans but it sounds to me as though you've got a lot on your plate at the moment with your work at Kagosian um and and continuing to develop. Uh, uh, the, the Salon 21 um, eventually into a, a, a do, can you see yourself going have to watch that your Kagosian bosses aren't listening to this but can you see yourself eventually making that a full-time 
career. I would, yeah, I think the dream for a lot of people is to eventually sort of be your own boss. But at the same time, I'd never discount the experience I have from working at top gallery. And, 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 and of course, by working for them, you're actually bringing people into your Salon 21 potentially. Yeah, or... and not in a competitive way, but um, more just in learning how to make those connections. Mm. You know, learning about myself and, and pushing myself to interact with people at you know that you know upper echelon of of the art world and also the artists that we get to work with and um create craft stories for and get press for i mean we just did a huge event with takashi murakami and getting to meet him and hear about his story is amazing and so thinking about how to replicate that on a smaller scale for an artist who's my age who just graduated from art school and so so taking what i'm learning and, and applying it to help um, support and develop the next generation of artists. And I don't know a lot of people other than big galleries who, who are doing that. And um, I think something that I actually had an interesting discussion about recently is how a lot of smaller galleries actually have been caught sort of taking advantage of their artists rather than larger galleries who, you know, aren't necessarily investing for, um, investing in emerging artists for like the monetary reason, but doing it as more of um, part of their, you know, programming and, and wanting to support versus a smaller gallery is obviously in need of, of that capital. And so there are a lot of artists who have sort of been swindled by smaller art galleries. And yeah. one thing that I want to keep in mind with Salon 21 is while I might do an exclusive print series with an artist that I work with, I would never want to stifle other career opportunities for them. So if another established gallery approaches them and wants to represent them like go for it my goal is that I should be a step along the way of uh, you know their career path and you know helping them gain a level of um success that that they deserve um and so I kind of work with artists in in like a freelance role like that so I just think it's it's the most fair when you're when you're starting out you should take advantage of all these opportunities that come your way it's one of the paradoxes, isn't it, that the that the kind of struggling emerging gallery is the one most likely to exploit, yeah. in, in quotation marks, artists, not 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 necessarily in a bad way, but in a necessary way. Um, and yet, and and Gagosian, of course, and the and the big alpha galleries, as we call them, White Cube, etc. They 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 kind of um, they they because of the artists and estates they represent, they they can be be more. Uh, you know, they can ensure that the people who are buying works of art um, are, are I've, I've actually heard someone from Gagosian um, in, in a London conference once say this, he says that we're, the, the collectors that we really want are the ones that we know are going to bequeath their collection to the nation. So yeah. they're, they're collecting now with all their money and privately, but eventually for the public good, that is going to come into the public domain in a bequest. It's really interesting. And so for me, you know, whether it's selling prints at a more affordable price point, I want to get my generation interested in in the art yeah. of collecting and obviously yeah. I'm not doing it at that level but I do think it's admirable that larger galleries are thinking in terms of the future and and vetting the clients who they're yeah. um working with because you know it's always so amazing to see a priceless work of art that someone has in their private collection at a museum and so that's something I always struggle with too is working in the commercial realm um but also having those ties to cultural institutions and um, my values there so it's I'm always being pulled in different directions but I think that's the nature of the art world but so you can you can you can exploit that yourself but because 
you know, I can imagine that when you when Salon 21 is properly up and running in the end, you with Gagosian, you might be able to talk to the artist and Gagosian and say, look, um, if we, if we have a limited edition of prints, I'm having this soiree <laughs> to use the 18th century French term for the Salon event um, in a, in a in a couple of weeks' time. Maybe maybe I could um, maybe maybe we can introduce and display some multiples, some limited edition multiples, and get yeah. people people interested. But at the same time, you're kind of also supporting uh, the the artists on other levels as well. Um, yeah. And then one, once you get your people interested in in like buying prints, for example, but um, then then you can start bringing uh, more emerging artists into the picture, you know. Exactly. I mean, yeah. and I think to their credit, a lot of these galleries and museums are starting to develop young collectors programs yeah. because they want to start stewarding in the next generation of yeah. of their buyers. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I hope there's ways for me to collaborate with larger galleries in that capacity. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Excellent. Well, Alex, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. So um, I'd just like to thank you so much on behalf of all the listeners uh, for sharing your, 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 your social um, ideas as well as your, your art business ideas um, with us. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, David. It's always a pleasure. Um, and as I said on the panel, um, if anyone has any questions or wants to get involved, please reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at salon.21. Um, I'm always interested in talking and meeting new people, as you can tell. So <laughs> thank you for the invitation once again, and hope to talk to you in person soon. Absolutely. Absolutely.